Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm really excited to bring you the conversation I've had with Paul Bassett. Paul, an attorney by background, most well-known for founding Seek, seek seek.com.au, the marketplace and HR company with global success, who went on to found SquarePeg Capital. We have a conversation about SquarePeg Capital, the venture capital investor and fund. We talk about the three funds that they've deployed to date, all of which have been very successful with some well-noted investment successes in the technology area. We talk to Paul about what makes them unique, what is their secret source, and where he believes the venture capital industry is heading and why investors may want to include it in their portfolios. Please remember, this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be, specific financial advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming through. I really enjoy it. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I'm really enjoying the suggestions. Please keep them coming. For now, enjoy the podcast with Paul. Paul Bassett, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Really, really looking forward to the conversation. Well, I'm excited about this one particularly. Paul, perhaps you could start off for our listeners about giving a bit of a background to yourself and who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm I'm a co-founder and partner at SquarePeg. We're a um, venture capital fund that that invests in in young, um, early stage technology companies in in Australia, Israel, and Southeast Asia are the three regions we invest in. Um, you know, by way of background, I grew up in in Melbourne. Uh, started my career as as a lawyer. Spent six years working as a corporate and commercial lawyer. Uh, co-founded Seek with my brother Andrew and our third co-founder Matt in 1997. Um, so spent 14 years in Seek where we sort of started out focused just on, on Australia, um, then New Zealand, and then ended up expanding to, to China and Brazil and Mexico and Southeast Asia and into vocational education and training. So that was a, a great experience of 14 years. Um, and then we started Square Peg in, in 2012. And then as well as Square Peg, which is obviously, you know, my, my primary focus, I'm a commissioner of the AFL and spent six years on the board of West Farmers. A diverse portfolio. So what led you to start Square Peg and what was the motivation? Look, I think we you know, I had come out of I had I had come out of, you know, 14 years at Seek. Um, my co-founders at Square Peg, Tony and Justin and Barry, I'd known really well for a long time in different contexts. Justin's family office was was an investor. A very, very early investor in Seek and, and and he was a friend. Tony was an old school friend. We'd been at school together and his career was in uh, technology investment, banking and principal investment. And, you know, I think our view was is that it was really, really important for Australia to um, produce a really good number of high growth, innovative companies, the companies of the future. Um, there were more and more fantastic entrepreneurs emerging. We've seen that with companies like Atlassian and Envato and Canva becoming really important companies. So there were more and more entrepreneurs. There was basically no venture capital. 
And venture capital is partly about the capital, obviously, but also hopefully about the, the mentoring and bringing to bear expertise and support and being able to support companies financially right through their life cycle, not just at the beginning. And so we felt that was a massive gap in, in the sort of the, the technology ecosystem in Australia. And, and we thought there was a real opportunity for us in 2012 when there really, when we started, there really were no venture capital funds in Australia at that time. There'd been a few that had existed earlier that disappeared. There are a couple of others that came similar time to us or a little bit after us. Um, but really there was no venture capital industry in Australia when we looked at the market at the start of end of 2011, start of 2012. And we really, really wanted to support that next generation of entrepreneurs. And that's been a really exciting journey because we're just seeing so many great founders in Australia building quite amazing businesses. So fast forward eight years, what does the business look like now and what has been that voyage? Yeah, we've invested in about 40 plus companies. As I mentioned, we've gone from just investing in Australian startups to investing in Southeast Asia and Israel. That gives us a great lens. Technology, of course, is a global asset class and it gives us a great lens. What's happening in the world, an incredibly diverse and fast growing region like Southeast Asia. And then Israel, which is you know one of the great technology markets in the world and produce an amazing number of incredible companies. And so we're operating across multiple geographies. Um, we're now close to closing what's our fourth fund. Um, we're now in terms of sort of funds under management about 1.4, 1.5 billion Australian dollars. So it's a pretty significant size. Uh, we've got about 25 people on the team. Uh, we've grown our investment team significantly this year. Uh, with people like Peruse, who joined, she joined us um, in our team in Singapore as, as a partner. Uh, James, who joined our team in, in Sydney uh, as, as a principal. He, um, he came from Startmate, which was a great accelerator in Australia. Um, Casey, she joined us from Uber. Um, Yonatan in Tel Aviv, he joined us um, from, from his own startup. Um, Orly joined us from another great Israeli company. She was with Riskified. And so we've really added to the team on top of the, you know, the, the team that have the core of the team that's been there for seven or eight years. And so it's kind of broader geographies, uh, more funds, more companies, um, great team with a really diverse set of backgrounds and experiences. And, you know, whether it's in relation to fintech or whether it's in relation to education, whether it's in relation to SaaS software as a service, we've brought to bear, you know, great expertise across the board and, and, and love working with each other and, and really passionate about backing the founders who are the heroes of this story. Paul, perhaps we could just helicopter up for one moment and talk to our listeners, many of which who have been successful entrepreneurs and business owners, but the concept of wealth management and their experience in that domain may not be as strong. Can you describe the typical, for, for our listeners, asset class in, in venture capital and how that fits together with seed and angel rounds and private equity um, and, and what that sort of matrix looks like, if you like, so they can try to get it in a, in a, uh, in a little uh, pigeonhole if we could. Yeah, I think that I think that's really help really helpful, Dave. And I think a couple of things. Number one is people sometimes sometimes confuse technology and venture capital. Venture capital is a is a type of business, a, a, a type of investor that happens to invest in young companies, and and that could be anything from something that's just an idea. Um, or you know what might be called a pre-seed round, or, or the next round would be called a seed round. Um, but really, really young companies pre-product, 
or it could be a series A round, which is normally the, the first round in which a, a venture capital fund comes in. And usually there's a product in place at that time or series B and so on. And so really all a venture capital fund does is it uses institutional capital. It backs young companies. Um, and, and, and it's also, you know, back startups. And so what is a startup? If you think about it, every single company starts life as, as a startup as one or two or three or four people coming together and starting a company. And that's anything from, you know, that's, you know, every company starts with, with a, with a particular vision. And some of those companies have an ambition to become a really, really important company. And so, you know, the biggest organizations in the world right now, whether it's Apple as a technology company or whether it's JP Morgan as a bank, they started life as a startup, one person or two people or three people. And really, our goal as a venture capital investor is to try to back those founders who are starting companies, young companies, often a year, two years, three years, four years old, that have the ambition to become the next Apple. Now, of course, that doesn't happen very often. But you've, we've seen even in Australia, we've seen uh, produced in Australia companies with values of tens and tens of billions of dollars, um, Atlassian, Afterpay, Canva, Air Wallex, um, the, you know, if you go back a little bit earlier, the Seeks, the, the car sales, the realestate.com that I use. And so that's really what venture capital is, is to, to identify those founders, back them with capital and with support and mentoring and really help them on, on their journey to build really, really big businesses. Then we happen to invest in technology companies. So what we specialize in is software and internet companies. And so that's our area of focus. And, and why are we focusing on software and internet? Um, partly it's because we what, that's what we understand, that's what we do, that's what we've done in our careers. But secondly, you know, we think these companies are incredibly unique. The, the thing that's different about most internet companies compared to most traditional businesses, if you're a retail business and you want to grow, you add another store, you spend money on a fit out, you find a location, you sign a lease, um, you, you purchase more inventory, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite a capital intensive process to grow. A lot of these young technology companies, they do require a lot of money up front to kind of get to this sort of, you know, strong position and become really, really profitable. But they're what we call very scalable businesses. And so, you know, so for a lot of these companies, it doesn't cost them any money to add another customer onto their platform because the platform is there. The internet provides this global distribution. Anyone can access it from anywhere in the world. And so you get these companies that sometimes require a fair bit of capital to get to break even and to, and to win their markets. But the markets often tend to be winner take most economics and the largest players can build these enormous businesses, which is why five of the 10 largest companies in the world today are venture-backed venture -backed, um, technology companies. And you've had a pretty good track record. You mentioned you came in and started in 2012. Uh, 2020, about 1.5 billion under management and some big investors, institutional investors in Host Plus and Australian. I've seen some media reports. Um, you, I think you've had Fund Zero, Fund One, Fund Two, and you're about to close off Fund Three and then a slightly different opportunities fund. Um, tell us about the track record of those funds and what you've learned over that time. 
Yeah, look, we've been we've been really lucky. I think, you know, we've been able to find a bunch of amazing founders. Actually, in all three of the geographies that we, we operate in, we've found some amazing founders. Um, you know, the journey of a venture capital fund is you're investing in young companies. So 2012, 2013, you know, we used our own capital and capital also from people who were close to us in our network, people like my brother, uh, you know, James Packer, who was our chair at Seek. So a bunch of people are very close to us who are our initial investors and wanted to invest alongside us. And if you think about venture capital, because, you know, back when you start, it's a little bit like having a sort of a, you know, a scotch business, if you like. Imagine being a manufacturer of scotch. You know, that first 12 years, no money's coming in the door because, you know, you've got to, you've got to wait for it to age for 12 years. So it's a, it's a unique challenge, if you like, to, to build a scotch business. Venture capital is not much different because the first few years or so, basically just money's going out the door. We're investing in companies with, with lots of ambition and lots of hopes and dreams, but no guarantee of results. And so that first pool of capital that we call Fund Zero, we invested between 2012 and 2015. Uh, it was a total, we invested, it was about $140 million. Um, we have now returned way more, actually in cash, We've now returned way more than that $140 million, but the total value of that pool of capital, both what we've returned in cash and the value today of the unrealized holdings in companies like Canva and Fiverr, which is a great freelancer marketplace, Israeli company, um, Property Guru, which is a, like realestate.com.au, but in Southeast Asia, a whole range of different businesses. The total value of that portfolio, realized and unrealized, is probably about 650 or 700 million today. So it's been a real, we've been very, very lucky. It's a great story. And so, you know, the, and so that was nice to see the value of that portfolio increase. But what happened this year that's really changed the equation was we actually started giving back a considerable amount of that capital from, from I think now it's about eight or nine companies that we've exited in whole or in part. And so it's really gratifying for investors because you understand investors saying, you know, when you start is like, I hope you invest in great companies. And then a few years in, it's like, oh, this looks really good on paper. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, am I ever going to see the cash? And now to have started to return multiples of those dollars and, and have multiples left is obviously really, really exciting. And I think, you know, hopefully great for our investors and they showed unbelievable confidence and faith in us. So we're, we're really thrilled to be able to, you know, deliver those outcomes. And how it raises an interesting point in how do you best determine uh, performance hurdles, for instance, um, you know, most clients and portfolios will think about a compound annual growth rate. Mm. Uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult with the style of private equity where people will make a commitment of X and then you might draw down a quarter each year over four years or, you know, 20% over five years each year. And then you might, might start giving that money back. So do you give more weight to money on money as you'll see as a multiple of the money in and out, or do you give more weight to the IRR, which is a kind of weighted average of yeah. that? Do you, do you have any specific ways of thinking about these things? Look, we, we have that debate all the time. And, and of course, institutional investors tend to be their own performance, you know, for say a super fund that invests in us. If you look at the, the rankings and the tables, and that's been quite a big topic has been discussed by government is based on their IRR. So they, they do tend to focus more on IRR. The one comment I would make is, you know, the, the reason why we, why multiple of money or MOM is so, we think is so important is if you think about it, if you could choose two investments, one that you, you know, one that you held for three years and compounded at 15% and one you held at 10 years and you compounded at 15%, of course, you choose the one that you could compound for 10 years at 15%. Now, the question becomes more complex if you could choose between 
three years at 18% and 10 years at 14%. And that's a mm-hmm. great debate because, of course, you know, after that three years ends, what are you then going to do with the capital? What sort of return are you going to get? But ultimately, you know, I think the point about venture capital, and I think the, the pros and cons for, for your for your listeners to understand. One is there is an element of risk, high risk, obviously. They're young, risky companies. We try to mitigate that risk in two ways. One is by hopefully bringing to bear a lot of expertise. This is what we do for a living. We live and breathe this stuff. We have incredibly vigorous debates about what companies to invest in. We meet about 2,000 companies a year, and we only invest in maybe eight or 10 companies a year. So hopefully we mitigate that risk through expertise and insight. And and that's the judgment people are making if if they decide to invest with us. Secondly, we hopefully we mitigate that risk by by having a portfolio. And so a a given fund might have 18 or 20 different companies in it, compared to say an investor doing on their own and meeting their neighbor's daughter, who's got this great idea for a startup, and it might be amazing. But if they're only investing in one company, by definition, that's much, much higher risk. So the negative is it's riskier and obviously it's also illiquid. You know, you can't kind of, you know, ring up your broker. You can't ring up your advisor at Coda and say, hey, you know, Ian, can you please sell these shares for me? Because they are illiquid. You, you, you're, you're making a commitment for a long period of time. Therefore, investors don't put all of their capital in venture capital. And any investor who came to us and said, I want to give you all our, mo- all our money, we'd, we'd say to them, look, no, that, 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 that isn't a great idea. We're not investment advisors, but it clearly, you would advise them not to do that. It'd be an awful idea. Um, but the reason why people invest in venture capital is a fewfold. One is, you know, when you invest in these young companies, I mean, we, you know, with, you know, Canva as an example, it had an $8 million valuation when we invested. It, it most recently raised, um, I think it was $6 billion US dollars. And so it's an extraordinary story. And, and the valuation when they raised that was the it valuation was? The the initial the initial investment yes yeah it was eight, eight million so the, the amount they raised was a lot less but actually the valuation of the company was eight million dollars which is which is eight, eight million US to what six billion US yeah which which is incredible so it doesn't happen often Fiverr we invested in it was a much bigger valuation we invested but to put it in context context um, Fiverr which which is a freelancer marketplace I mentioned Israeli company connecting freelancers and small business. At the start of this year, the share price was, you know, about $20. It closed last night at exactly $200. And again, it doesn't always happen. I can tell you about lots of examples where we where we haven't done so well. But the point being is, is that if you can find one or two companies like a Fiverr or a Canva or an Airwallex or a Phoenixel, some of the companies we've backed, you can, you know, you can make many, many, many multiples of your money. Uh, you can only, obviously, if you put in $100 into something, you can only lose $100, but you might be able to turn that $100 into $10,000 or $20,000 $20, if, you know, if things go really, really well. And so first and foremost, because you're investing in young companies and you're investing them right early in their journey, if you make some good decisions and you get a little bit lucky, then investors can ride the wave of those, as those companies grow into really, really big companies. That's number one. But number two also, we're in a world of disruption. We know it's very complicated in relation to how do you value retail property at the moment with so much moving to e-commerce? How do you value the banks at the moment? How do you value other industrial companies, retailers and, and, and the like? It, there is a lot of disruption. There's a lot of risks to our existing portfolio. Venture capital, both hopefully in its own right, if you, if you choose the right manager, is going to deliver hopefully great returns for you. But secondly, to some extent, it acts as a hedge 
against the risks of disruption to the, the companies that we don't always perceive as being risky. But, you know, if you owned Maya, for example, 10 years ago and bought them at, you know, four or $5 a share and now they're 25 cents a share, that is high risk. So some of the blue chips in portfolios, uh, when you're seeing, you know, Telstra relying on paired copper line, um, you know, they blue chips based on historical uh, a subject to the type of disruption often that you're talking about. Um, Paul, I'm interested why, and, and I think I know, but I, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners and to talk about, um, I think your model tends to replicate a US venture capital fund, typically what started all in and around or was famous in Silicon Valley and around the Stanford area and Hewlett Packard and Lockheed and all this post-Second World War. I take it you don't have exposure to the US because of competition? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So that's one part of the question. And to follow up, why Southeast Asia specifically? Our listeners will be familiar with Israel. We've had a couple of podcasts uh, with the IBEX guys who are right. fun just on Israel. So we're reasonably familiar with the story of what comes out of Israel and the uniqueness of that. But I'd be interested, why not the US and why Southeast Asia? Yeah. So I think we've got to remember venture capital as an asset class and, and how it works and how it operates. And so firstly, there's kind of you know what's called a power law in venture capital, which is basically most, if not all, the returns come from a very small proportion of companies. And so we are, you know, we are, to use an American baseball analogy, we are aiming for home runs, not hits and singles. Of course, not every, not every company we invest in will be a home run. Um, some will fail, but some will end up being hits and singles. They'll be really good businesses. They'll, they'll founders will make an amazing, build an amazing business. But our aim, we're looking to back the founders who have ambition to build really, really big companies. That's number one. Um, why not the US? Yeah, there, there are some incredible venture capital funds in the US, um, particularly in the Bay Area. They do it unbelievably well. They've got amazing networks. Um, venture capital is an access to business. You know, if I'm investing, if I'm a you know, great manager, let's say, for example, Cooper Investors, um, a great manager in, in listed equities or a Fidelity. Um, I can kind of, I can buy any share I like. Now, maybe if I'm a two, if I'm a huge manager, I might have an impact on the share price and stuff. But basically, I've got access to any listed share I like, whether it's, you know, depending on the mandate of the fund, whether it's local or global or in particular geography like Japan or a particular theme like technology. And so, you know, as a listed company investor, there is no issue about access per se. For us, um, you know, people think it's about, you know, founders convincing us to back them, but it's also just as much about us convincing the best founders why they should take capital from us rather than from our competitors. And so I mentioned we look at, you know, 2,000 companies. The truth is of the 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or maybe 100 companies we look at really closely every year you know, and, and we choose 10. Very often the companies that we want to invest in, we're not the only people who think they're amazing companies. And the founders often have, you know, two or three or four or five um, different venture capital funds competing to invest in that business. And so a lot of it is about why square peg rather than why another fund. And so for us to be in the US when we're competing against funds that have been there for 20 or 30 or 40 years, have got amazing networks, it's not going to work. So we want to invest in geographies that, that meet two criteria. One, where we think we have a right and entitlement to some of, if not a large proportion of the best deal flow in those markets. We've got strong networks, strong relationships, really strong brand, 
founders perceive us as adding a lot of value and helping them a lot. So, you know, basically our criteria one, we want to be in markets where we can, where we think we've got a right to seeing, you know, to investing in those best businesses. And secondly, we want to be in those markets we think are really, really exciting markets. And so for us, and this has evolved over the eight years, but in the last five, six years, as well as Australia, we've been focused on Southeast Asia and Israel um, as markets we think meet those two criteria. You mentioned that, you know, you've covered Israel previously and it is an incredible ecosystem. And not only do we get to invest in incredible companies, but we learn a lot and we can take those learnings back to our founders in other markets. We can, we learn ourselves. Um, you have founders of started companies, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. It, it's an amazing market, but, but, you know, you've covered it previously. Why, why, why Southeast Asia? Um, Southeast Asia has got about four or 500 million internet users right now growing pretty fast. Um, you know, we think I, I, you know, if I go back 15, 16 years where it's seek, um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was about 15 years ago when we first invested in uh, maybe 14 years ago, when we first invested in China, that the technology market, the internet market in China was really nascent, really emerging. There was a handful of good companies, um, companies like Alibaba and Tencent had just been founded, but no one had really heard of them. Today, China in 2020 is a giant. It's sort of second only to the US and may well surpass the US in terms of a tech market in the next 10 or 15 years. India 10 or 12 years ago was a market that was only somewhat interesting to, to tech investors. Now in the last 10 years, it's, it's not as far as advanced as China, but has made unbelievable progress we think Southeast Asia exhibits a lot of the same characteristics. Um, large population, um, uh, inc significant increase in affluence and in, in the number of, you know, number of people who are, you know, can afford to, to buy services and have a particular interest in services, whether it's in healthcare or education or financial services or e-commerce or in a range of different areas. So you've got an increase, significant increase in, in incomes. Um, a young population that, are, that are, you know, sort of with all the dynamics that come with a young population, mobile first markets, um, technology first, in a lot of cases, you know, in places like Australia, you know, some, you know, we came along at Seek and we were basically competing with the newspapers. In, in Southeast Asia, in a lot of markets, the, the, you know, the equivalent product never existed. It basically existed for the first time in a, in a, in a digitized form in, in, in some, in some way. And so you're seeing all these really, really exciting companies emerge. And, and we've been investing very heavily there for the last five or six years. We've got now got a team on the ground with, with two partners in, in, in Tushar and Peruse. She just joined us from Stripe. Um, Ed, who just joined us from, he just joined us from, from BCG. Um, and so we've got a team that's really, really focused on that market. And we are, you know, we are excited about all three of our markets, but the dynamics in Southeast Asia for the next five or 10 years are going to be very, very exciting. One of the things uh, that stands out and what you touched upon there is your position in the market now in the Australian place. You're probably towards the very, very pointy and the pinnacle of the Australian venture capital industry. So you probably get first and last look almost at most deals that you want to get that at. How How is that playing out for you in Israel? Are you getting the deal flow and are you getting into deals you want to or do you find yourselves having to scramble for that or being um, being pushed aside for others, um, you know, maybe that are, are out of Israel or US with Israel offices there. How's that playing out for you? Yeah, look, we've been, I mean, a couple of things about the Israel, the Israel market. Firstly, it's a really, really large market. You know, it's, a, it's you know, it's, 
probably five, and the Australian market's growing really fast. It's probably five or 10 times larger than, than Australia. And so you, there's a huge number of deals and, we, you know, and we've got four people in our team in Israel. So we don't try to cover every single deal in Israel. The market's just too large to do that, like it is in the Bay Area. Venture funds in the Bay Area aren't trying to do everything. They're focusing on particular areas. They've got particular networks, relationships. Um, I think we came in with an approach which was very much partnering with other VCs, both local and, um, and US VCs that operate in the market. It was important for us to have team on the ground, uh, a team that was very, very well known and respected in, in, in the Israeli ecosystem. One of our colleagues, Dan Krasenstein, also went up, moved over to Israel and is actually literally just, has literally just flown back to Australia after six years living in Israel, but he kind of spearheaded it. So we had the, I think the best of both worlds of someone who'd been involved with Square Peg basically from day one, who knew the culture and the values, but also a, built, with, built a local team over there. But when we look at companies like Fiverr, which, which I mentioned, is now a, you know, it's now a seven billion US dollar market cap, and we invested in that company at a tiny, you know, it's now one of the most successful Israeli startups of the last, last ten or fifteen years. So we're incredibly lucky, um, you know, to lead around in Fiverr in 2015, and and you know, join some great funds like Bessemer and Axel um, on that journey. Um, companies like Adoc, um, which is um, radiology um, AI for radiology. Um, Climacell, which is disrupting weather forecasting. And that's, you know, a few examples of a whole range of companies. We've built, a, I think we've done a few things in Israel. One, we've just been lucky and we've been able to invest in a whole range of amazing companies, often in highly competitive deals. And uh, we've been able to convince founders that we're a great partner. Of course, like in Australia, Southeast Asia, we don't always win every deal. We lose some deals, but our track record has been amazing. We've been lucky because those companies have performed well. And I think also have worked really collaboratively with everyone in the ecosystem and seen as a really good partner. Um, all those things have helped us. And then I think lastly, you know, companies that do have great Israeli, local Israeli funds or great US funds, they bring something to bear. What a lot of founders have said to us is, and you know, Five is a really great example. Adoc's a great example. They've said, you know, the Asian region is just such an important market for us over the next five or ten years. Your networks and relationships in Australia, in Southeast Asia, in China, in other markets in the region are enormously valuable. And so we're already getting great networks in the US from our US investors. What you guys can bring is something dip, um, different and complementary. And so all of those factors together, you know, and frankly, with a dose of luck, has helped us build a very, very strong position in Israel in, in the last five or six years. Paul, can you talk us through uh, what I'd like to convey across to the listener is really uh, what your funnel is, if you'd like, what, what the investment process is. And maybe you could talk, and you've spoken about a few examples, maybe you've given a, an additional example of a company that's gone through that funnel and how it goes through and do it maybe both ways. One where the outcome you know, a couple of years down the track has been great. We've, it's easy to talk about those ones, but maybe one as well where the outcome hasn't been so well and often there's there's things to learn from that as well. Yeah. So I'd say let's start with failure. And, and one of the things about what we do being a venture capital investor is you do need, you do need to have a high tolerance for risk. You do need to have a um, a mindset and a temperament that you accept failure because we fail a lot. We we get a lot we get a lot wrong. The other thing about failure, I mean, we've talked about companies we invest in that don't work out well. That is that is expensive failure for us. It is nowhere near as expensive as the failure of looking at a company deciding not to invest or missing out on a deal for one reason or another, and that company become a huge success. 
Uh, you know, there's a great fund in the US, actually, I mentioned them before, Besma. If you go to Besma's website, they publish what they call their anti-portfolio. This is the companies they could have invested in and chose not to. It includes Apple and Google and Tesla. It's like, oh my God. It's so, you know, the truth is that that stuff is really painful, but it's just, you know, one of the things I said when we started out on our journey is unless you're occasionally, unless you're um, uh, prepared to occasionally look like a complete and utter fool, you shouldn't be in venture capital because you sometimes look like a complete idiot and because uh, the decisions you make, both companies that don't work out, but as I said, particularly companies that, that are successful, you don't invest in. So I think if we think about failure for a moment, I, I would say we put failure, companies that haven't, re and, and bearing in mind, the failure for the founders who've put three or four or five or six or 10 years of their life into these companies and have really dedicated so much of their energy and their career into making these companies a success, it is much more painful than it is for them than it is for us. And we're incredibly empathetic and we want to support them on their journey, whether companies are, uh, you know, you know, performing incredibly well or struggling. We want to continue to help them and support them. Sometimes we can't always back them with capital because we have to be good stewards of our investors' capital. But we want to help them as, as best we can and we want to continue support them through the journey. But where the companies that don't work out for one reason or another, you know, we look at them and I'll think, you know, I'll, I won't mention names, but I'll talk about examples. Where, where they don't work out, it usually fits into one of two buckets. One, it's a company in education where, you know, really interesting model, team had a great product background, um, really struggled to scale the business, really stuck, struggled to bring customers on board to pay, even though it was a great product. I think as we went into that investment, it was an investment we made about five or six years ago. I think as we went into that investment, we said truthfully about the founders, we think they're terrific people. I don't know that we had the conviction we needed around their capability. And so perhaps to some extent, we kind of got too excited about the market. And as it turned out, the founders, and they had built a great product, but they couldn't sell that product. And you need a great product, you need to be able to sell the product. And, and, and selling could be in all sorts of forms. It doesn't necessarily mean a sales team. The product, it could be a, you know, what's called product-led uh, product led sales where kind of it's very Atlassian's done a pretty good job of that. Atlassian's done an extraordinary job of it. And, and maybe we'll come back that come back later. I mean, one of the great tech success stories globally in the last 10 years, 20 years, not just in Australia. And so that's one group of failure where we, where we one type of failure where we look at the company and we actually say, what could we and should we have done differently in terms of our decision-making process? And we analyze that pretty carefully. There is another group of failure, and I can think of a company right now that has the great founder, really, really interesting market opportunity. We thought the timing was great. I don't think, even though it hasn't worked out the way we would have liked, um, I don't think um, we would have done anything differently if we had our time over again. Uh, you know, there, things don't always go to plan in early stage. Lots of things can go wrong. And when we're investing in a company, there's no guarantee of success. It's about odds and probabilities and, and, and hopefully the odds, you know, being the, uh, you know, odds being in our favor, but no guarantees. And so that's that second group of companies. In terms of the companies that are successful, I mean, you know, absolutely, we, we try to learn from those. I think it's important. I would be really on it. I think we've got to be really candid. In some cases, there's been, you know, there's been an element of luck and serendipity. And so, you know, it's really easy in our business when you back a company that's become phenomenally successful in a short period of time, Airwallex, great Melbourne FinTech is a good example. There was sort of luck involved in there. I mean, we were introduced to the company by another VC who, you know, they, they, the company had decided 
and not to, to accept capital from them or from by another investor, um, number one. Number two, Jack was like, look, he was mainly raising capital out of China from people like Tencent and Sequoia China and had a global vision with a particular focus on China. Why do you need a local investor? But, you know, as it turned out, you know, when I first met Jack, he said to me, he said, look, you know, we, we've met before. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't remember. He said, well, actually, you know, we didn't actually meet. I heard you speak. I was like, it was our graduate, it was our it was our class at university and you were, you came in as a speaker and like, it really, it really inspired me to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, you know, that was a great example where it's better to be lucky than smart. And so part of the reason we we're able to get in and, and Jack wanted as an investor was a, there was this sort of like, there was this bond. And also the fact that we were a Melbourne investor, they were a Melbourne company, all of their other investors were outside Australia. So we could really help them and support them and you know, 10 minutes away down the road and help them. But but the role of luck as well as the role of good judgment, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, it comes down to judgments around the team, first and foremost. What is the problem they're solving and understanding the particular problem and how they're going about solving it and are they doing it in a way that's unique and hard to replicate? And then there's an aspect around timing and timing is unbelievably important and is massively underrated as a catalyst for why technology companies become successful at particular points in time. And, and how many, to give an idea of that funnel, how many companies would you meet with or view or come in the top of that funnel each year and how many out the bottom? Yeah, so about, about 2,000 companies at the top of the funnel. Now, we wouldn't necessarily meet in person with all 2,000, but, but there are 2,000 companies we interact with. They might send us a, a business plan or a deck. Um, we might have, in a lot of cases, probably, you know, certainly, you know, nor, close to 1,000 companies we probably meet face-to-face -face each year across the team. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it's a phone call. You know, we try, we're really conscious of the fact that, you know, for these founders, this is often the most important thing going on in their life. So we need to be incredibly, we need to be incredibly respectful. Uh, we need to hopefully they even if we say no to them, hopefully they take something out of the conversation, something useful that we can help them with. But starts with that two thousand. It probably pretty quickly gets down to a couple of hundred companies that we might have multiple meetings with. You know, I might meet a company and say and say to you know someone else in the team, say to Ben who works with me in Melbourne or Casey in Sydney, say, hey, I really want you to meet there. You know, really want to meet these guys, or or vice versa. They might meet a company and say, hey, you know, you know, really want you to meet. So we swarm pretty quickly, and the companies we're excited about. Um, often we'll get them in, even very early in the process, we'll get them in to meet the entire team. We have a weekly a weekly investment team meeting every every Monday um, for our entire team across Australia, Singapore, Southeast Asia. Uh, sorry, Australia, Singapore and Israel. And, um, and so we might get them in to meet the whole team. We try to keep it pretty informal, make it pretty conversational rather than stiff and formal. Um, there's probably 30 or 40 companies a year that we will seriously look at. We call it a stage one where a team member who's leading the, the, the opportunity, leading the investment, usually working with a second team member, will put together a fairly brief paper, certainly get them to company come in. We'll talk about the company, what they do, what we like about it. The team will give a little bit of an input about, you know, the questions they've got, what excites them, what concerns them. Someone might say, hey, I saw a company. It's one of the great things about multi-geography. We might be talking about a company in Indonesia and someone and one of the team in Tel Aviv, Orly in Tel Aviv might say, hey, I saw a company that does something pretty similar and we met with them. So there's a lot of sharing of IP and knowledge. But it's about 30 or 40 companies a year we do what we call a stage one. Um, the next stage would be a stage two um, where we actually get the company in again. Obviously, there's been multiple 
things that have happened in, in the interim in terms of the, the deal team and, and the company, but we'll get them in to present to the entire team again. And then we make a decision off the back of that. And that 2,000 companies at the very top of the funnel becomes about 10 companies at the bottom of the funnel that we actually invest in. And I believe you've got five key areas of focus in the technology area. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about those areas and why those areas? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and bear in mind, a technology evolves, it changes, markets change. There will be evolution in, in those areas over the next few years. Um, you know, firstly, marketplace businesses. Um, obviously, my background at Seek is in marketplace businesses. My colleague, Dan, my partner, Dan, he also worked at Seek for several years. So we've got a good understanding and, and pedigree um, in marketplace businesses. Um, you know, businesses like Seek or Fiverr that we've invested in or Health Match, which is an Australian marketplace for clinical trials, connecting patients, um, con connecting patients with clinical trials. Um, Property Guru, I mentioned before in Southeast Asia, they tend to be in success. Marketplaces tend to be winner take most type economics. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to look for a job on Seek because that's where all the jobs are, yep. or everyone wants to go to Health Match for the clinical trials, fulfilling. find freelancers on Fiverr. Uh, they're very defensible. They tend to be high margin. You look at realestate.com.au, it's a, you know, it's a 12 or $13 billion market cap, maybe even a little bit more. Seek is now, I think, an eight or $9 billion market cap. So, you know, these businesses can be become very big businesses, very defensible, um, have really good pricing power. They become really essential to, to the buyer and seller. They really need these marketplaces. Think about the stock exchange. The ASX is a brilliant, as a brilliant example of a great marketplace business. So marketplace business is one area. Um, secondly, what we call software as a service businesses, and I, I don't want to go into too much history and detail there, but if you think if you go back long enough, software, you'd basically, you know, you go to the computer shop sure. and you'd buy you buy a shop. Yeah, you buy a floppy yeah. disk or a CD-ROM eventually. and you'd Update to 3.1, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Exactly. And you were buying a product. I mean, there was no real upgrade cycle. I mean, depending on the product, you'd often pay up front and then you'd pay a, a license fee of, I think it was 18% each year and stuff like that. But there wasn't really much in the way of upgrades or they were very complex to do upgrades. A few years later, you'd throw out the product, you'd replace it with a new version, et cetera, et cetera. The whole model of software, obviously, it became online online delivery. We all, you know, we all get our software through the internet. We don't we don't buy it uh, from shops anymore and install it. Um, it. It's always on. It's always available. When when a change is made, when a change is made to the product, when it, when when it's improved or updated or a bug is fixed, all of their customers around the world get the benefit of it. It is the ultimate bill once, build once, sell many times business, and it's now sold as a service. And so instead of spending Instead of spending, you know, I don't know, two thousand dollars buying MYOB, I either subscribe to MYOB or to Zero, and I pay forty or fifty bucks a month for whatever it is, and the pricing varies on how many users, etc. So, software as a service, as well as the rise of the cloud, has been the key, the key computing paradigm of the last, you know, ten years or so. Um, certainly, you know, the, the, the rise of the mobile internet, which is now, I guess, a somewhat old phenomenon sort of starting in, you know, 2007, um, the rise of cloud computing and, 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 and software as a service business model has been, has been huge at last year and obviously is the ultimate example of a, of a successful SaaS business in Australia. But Australia's produced lots and lots of these great companies. And so Canva is obviously a business we're investing in as a SaaS business. Vend, which is a point of sale business in New Zealand, um, uh, cloud-based point-of-sale software, software as a service. Deputy, great, um, 
great product, Sydney-based founder um, for managing for large and small companies, whether you're in hospitality, whether you're in retail, whether you're in healthcare, managing your hourly workers, your shift workers, um, people in a factory, nurses, a maintenance crew for, for, for airlines, et cetera, um, ground staff, et cetera. And so software as a service has been, and we are in the early days of, you know, just notwithstanding how much value has been created by the whole migration to the cloud and the rise of software as service business models and, 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 and technology, we're still in the early days. And so that's another key theme for us. In terms of related, very much related to that, and particularly playing this theme in Israel, the whole rise of the cloud, um, you know, a bunch of storage businesses who have been, we've invested in, um, a whole range of different businesses that are taking advantage of the fact that everything, everything is moved, almost literally everything is moving from on-premise to the cloud and, and the need to scale, the scale these, you know, extraordinarily large um, cloud hosting platforms. Obviously, you know, we know, you know, we know of AWS and Azure and 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 Google cloud platform as, as the three dominant players, but but the whole, you know, there is so many different opportunities within within this sort of whole migration of the cloud in a whole range of a whole range of different areas in in compute, in storage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then two other themes, I guess you'd call them more verticals anything is, is um, fintech and healthcare. Um, we've invested a lot in financial services, particularly in Australia and Southeast Asia, um, Athena, Airwallex, uh, Zella, which is a young company that's gonna launch early next year, we're really excited about. Phoenix Cell in Southeast Asia, um, you know, having Peruse join our team where she was running, running Stripe, first employee in Stripe, Southeast Asia and Hong Kong and grew that from herself to, you know, leading a team of 150 people when she left earlier this year, her background in financial services and her knowledge, you know, brings another dimension to our capability. So that's an important theme for us. We just see massive pools of profitability in financial services and a lot of unbundling um, in core banking services like mortgages and small business loans, in payments in wealth management and a whole range of different areas we're seeing some incredibly interesting business models emerge um, is, is, a, is another area. And then the last area is health. Um, health makes up, depending on the economy, somewhere between 10 to 15% of GDP, um, growing at about 6% every year. That's not sustainable. Something's got to give. All of us are living longer, which is amazing news. Treatments keep getting better and better and better, but the costs keep rising. It's a very inefficient industry. There's so many different problems that need to be solved in healthcare, whether it's AI and radiology that I mentioned, Doctor Anywhere in Southeast Asia, which is providing a sort of an end-to-end platform for both business and consumer for healthcare in Southeast Asia, including a, a very large telehealth component, uh, which is obviously growing incredibly quickly. And so they're the five main areas. And then I'd sort of say, lastly, there's a real overlay of, of AI and artificial intelligence. And if, if the last you know 50 years or so, 60 or 70 years have been the mainframe era dominated by IBM, followed by the PC era dominated by Microsoft and Intel as the two great winners, but other great companies like Dell. Of course, the rise of the internet, which, you know, kind of you went to sort of open from, from closed to open, but of course, dominated by a number of incredible companies through the rise of the internet, the, you know, the, the Apples and, the, and, and well, Apple sort of reformed, I guess, in, in, in 2007, but obviously was a, originally a PC era company. Um, 
but companies like Google and Amazon and Alibaba and Tencent and Salesforce, which transcends both, you know, software as a service business model and, and the rise of the internet. Um, you know, so that was kind of the next era, the mobile internet, the starting really with the iPhone, but the rise of the mobile internet is so the, the, the you know, the, the mobile phone is the dominant form factor. And really the next era is going to be about AI, artificial intelligence. And, and a lot of our portfolio companies, whether it's Desi in Israel, whether it's Climacell, um, whether it's ADOC, a whole range of different companies, AI is, you know, front and center in terms of what they do and an important source of competitive advantage. Paul, I think that's been a wonderful summary for people interested in this space and people who are thinking about including exposure to venture capital uh, in their portfolios. Before I leave you, do you have any other messages or salient points you think you'd like to add? I think you've been very comprehensive there, so you don't need to, but if there's anything else, you can certainly add it. Now's the time. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, really, it's been a lot of fun and really enjoyed the conversation. I think, you know, David, I, I think the main thing here is technology can sometimes be really intimidating to people. And, you know, I, I mean, I started my career as a lawyer, so I know, you know, the learning curve has been very, very steep and it, and it continues sort of 20, you know, 23 years, 23 years later since we, when we started say, 23 years ago. And so it's hard, it's complicated, it's steep, you know. I would encourage people to learn as much space as possibly can. Partly it's about reading and finding blogs and listening to listening to podcasts like yours, but also just trying products and playing with products. I mean, I've got on my finger this ring, it's called an aura, aura ring. I just got it yesterday. It helps in relation to sleep and exercise and manage your health. It's sort of a bit of an alternative to the Apple Watch. Um, and so just try products and experiment. That's, that's how you learn. This stuff is a lot of fun and I would really encourage whether from an investment perspective or whether just as a, as a, as a consumer or whether it's in relation to running your own business, try things, learn. It is, it is, you know, it's incredibly exciting to be across disruptive technologies. Fantastic. I think it's a, a great way to leave it. Thank you very much for joining us inside the rope. Appreciate your time. Thanks David. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to inside the rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.